Welcome to Cato Audio for April 2009. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Cato Trade Policy Analyst Sally James tells us why we need more trade in services. International security expert Robert Pape explains what's driving suicide terrorism in Afghanistan. Law professor Jeffrey Rosen weighs in on civil liberties in the Obama years. And Cato Vice President Ted Galen Carpenter tells us why a violence-ravaged Mexico must seriously consider turning away from drug prohibition. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. Well, George W. Bush was the first president to give us a $2 trillion budget. And not surprisingly, he was also the first president to give us a $3 trillion budget. And now we have President Barack Obama, who has pledged that his budget will have a deficit of $1.75 trillion, a $600 billion, what he terms a down payment on fixing America's health care system. And he demanded and received a nearly $800 billion stimulus package to help uh, turn the tide on the U.S. economy. So I'm here with Don Boudreau, chairman of the Department of Economics at George Mason University, also, Chris Edwards, Director of Tax Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. And that's what we're here to talk about. Gentlemen, welcome. Now, on this issue of fiscal stimulus, obviously, it seems like George W. Bush brought us right up to the edge in terms of his uh, spending priorities. And now with an economic downturn, it seems that uh, the wisdom of spending is uh, all the more present in Washington. Don Boudreau, tell us, where are we? <laughs> well, we may be on the precipice, that's for sure. Look, if stimulus, this, this is a Keynesian idea, of course, the idea that, you know, if the economy is in a downturn, the only reason is because consumers and investors aren't spending enough money. It's an easy thing to fix. Government just steps in and spends it. There's a lot wrong with that view. One of the things wrong with that view is evident in the current data. It ain't working. Right? Unemployment continues to go up. People forget this is March of 09. In March of 08, we had a stimulus bill with $100 billion or something. It seems like peanuts now. Then we had another big stimulus in the fall, and we have now this other stimulus. It's not working. The unemployment rate continues to rise. The stock market's on a secular decline. If Keynesian theory were correct, then that money, that spending, would at least there'd be evidence that it's alleviating some problems. But no, the problems keep getting deeper, and so I think we're being pushed over the precipice. And the only thing that's really going on here is that the government is getting deeper and deeper into debt, and that is creating a burden that is pushed on to the next generation of young Americans. There is a moral issue here as well as an economic issue. All this debt will have to be paid back. Ultimately, it is a burden on the next generation. And just to give to put a couple of numbers on what's going on in Washington, which is really extraordinary, last year, total government public debt, as it's called, was about 40% of GDP. This year, by the end of this year, it'll be up to 60% of GDP. The year after that, up to 67% of GDP. That's the highest level of federal government debt since the 1940s when we were fighting World War II. So it is extraordinary what is going on in Washington. This is not just the regular kind of out-of-control deficit spending in Washington. This is a gigantic leap that is putting us into banana republic status. Now, all of this is occurring while... And those who watch the marketplace and macroeconomists seem to understand that this is during a time when individuals, when financial institutions and businesses are reevaluating what they know about uncertainty, what they know about risk, 
and are trying to deleverage, to take fewer risks, to focus on what is more real in their lives. How does stimulus affect this necessary process of deleveraging that the private sector is in? It screws it up. It's throwing money at a problem, and it's trying to recreate, in effect, the demand conditions that the bubble created. Everyone knows now that the bubble has burst. The fact is, when that bubble existed, it created a lot of uses of resources that we know now should never have been created. Resources were channeled into activities where they never should have been. In order for long-term economic stability and prosperity to return, we have to let those resources find their way into more viable uses. What this stimulus plan is trying to do is to reestablish those old demand conditions to prevent even this short-term pain. But if we do it, it'll only lead to longer term and greater pain. A portion of the stimulus legislation was slated for infrastructure. President Obama made it very clear that he believes that U.S. infrastructure is crumbling. There is a good deal of evidence that infrastructure can be growth enhancing. What about that idea? Let's assume that's all true. Let's assume that our infrastructure really is in terrible shape. No one does doubt, obviously, to have uh, economic growth, you need good infrastructure. No one doubts that one of the core duties of government is to supply infrastructure long before it does anything else. So here we are in 2009, and the government's admitting, look, we have failed at our core duty for decades. Now, why should we trust that government with less core duties? I don't even trust them to do the infrastructure any longer. But it's a curious admission that they've failed at a core duty. And interestingly, if you look at the actual national income accounts data, total government infrastructure spending in recent years during the 2000s has actually been at pretty high levels. It's higher now than it was during the 80s and the 90s, and it's as high as it was in the 1950s when the government was building the interstate highway system. So we're spending as much money, at least the government is spending as much money, but apparently we're not getting as much return from it. Everyone complains about the congested highways and the potholes in the roads. Well, for goodness sakes, the government's spending the money. What the heck are they doing with it? President Obama's budget, as I said before, has within it a $1.75 trillion deficit. He has pledged to cut the lower deficit number that we had uh, last year in half in either four years or eight years. I don't remember which. By the end of his first term. Yes. So he argues that we have so much spending that the U.S. government is doing, and at some point, tax rates are going to have to rise on your kids, on your grandkids, It's a difficult sell that the argument is spend now, save later, but in order to get our economy back, we need to spend now. Chris was right earlier. I mean, this is not just an economic issue. It's a moral issue. And we are imposing huge burdens on future generations for no obvious return. There's no, look, look, people talk about Keynesian stimulus. There's no overwhelming evidence. There's barely any evidence at all that Keynesian stimulus works to save an economy. The evidence that the infrastructure spending, it will be spent wisely, is pretty slim. And so we're imposing these huge tax burdens on future generations. They'll have to pay it. It'll mean that entrepreneurs in the future, they'll be less or more reluctant to set up businesses. This is a real problem. And we'll either have much higher taxes, much higher inflation. Both of them will be disastrous and both of them will indeed make us like a banana republic. In terms of government outlays projected long into the future, you talked about the national debt, but there is this larger problem of promised 
spending. Chris Edwards? Well, that's right. I mean, uh, President Obama has, in his new budget plan, uh, projects spending and taxes 10 years out. You ought to take these numbers with a grain of salt. Uh, There's often a lot of uh, smoke and mirrors in these budget numbers. Uh, And really, the only what budgets do is they sort of show the direction the presidents are going. But uh, even still, President Obama's uh, budget is pretty extraordinary. I mean, just if you look at total spending outside of the defense area. For three decades now, uh, that number has been about 13% of the economy, about 13 or 14% of GDP. Even after the current spike, President Obama wants to push that up to about 17% of GDP or about one-third more than the level under President Clinton, the last Democrat to hold the office. So President Obama here is sort of not going back to Clinton-style smaller government policies in a way. He is going off in a direction that we've seen no president go in decades. President Clinton was the last time uh, total federal spending was less than 20 percent of GDP. And during the Clinton years, uh, federal spending did fall as a share of GDP. Don Boudreaux? Sure. And, and one reason was because, you know, we had, the economy did boom. I mean, one reason the economy boomed so greatly is because we had the IT sector, which was largely unregulated. It created lots of efficiencies, lots of jobs. Trade expanded. That improved wealth. But now the government is stripping America of a lot of the prosperity that was built up then. Let's get into the numbers of the uh, proposal that uh, President Obama has laid out. He released a, a document recently, A New Era of Responsibility talking about what he hoped would uh, find its way into the federal budget. Chris Edwards, you've looked at it. What did you find? Well, I mean, he promises a lot of uh, pain and damage on the economy on both the taxing and spending side. We've talked a little bit about the spending. The numbers are extraordinary. The government will spend $3.9 trillion this year. Absolutely unbelievable amount of money. When uh, Bush came to office eight years ago, the government spent half of that, about $1.8, $1.9 trillion. On the tax side, President Obama's policies are enormously damaging as well. Uh, he will hike up income tax rates uh, on individuals up, up to above 40 uh, percent. He promises big tax increases on multinational corporations, which are under a lot of pressure with today's global economy. He goes in all the wrong directions. He increases uh, capital gains and dividends taxes. He talks in his speeches about competitiveness and making getting the economy moving again, but there's literally nothing in his budget document that would actually do that, would, that would actually help the private sector in its investment and job creation activities. What are some of the items in the budget that are particularly damaging? Well, one item that, uh, of course, is uh, President Obama's uh, global warming initiative. Uh, In the budget, he sort of provides the skeletal idea of raising uh, $600 billion in taxes with his cap and trade system. He goes around in the speeches claiming that he won't increase taxes on anybody except the very wealthiest. But in fact, he has a $600 billion tax increases uh, with his energy proposals. Don Boudreaux, as individuals and families are adjusting. I There is a series of commercials that Target is running, and it's called A Brand New Day. And uh, they advertise, well, this is the new car wash, and it's a little bottle of uh, product you buy to, to clean your car with. That is, families are deciding what's important, deciding things that they've previously had other people do, they're going to do for themselves. They're responding to signals that are out there in the economy. Talk about that. Yeah, well, they certainly do. Look, the problem with the economy today, it's not, contrary to what the Keynesians would have us believe, a problem of deficient aggregate demand so much as it is a problem of economic coordination. We have to get resources from where they don't belong into productive uses where they do belong, where they're more viable. That's 
is accomplished over time by allowing relative prices to adjust, by allowing the prices of some assets and some resources to fall, allowing demands for other assets and other resources to rise. It is a time-consuming process. It takes time, but that's the only way the economy can adjust itself to the reality of consumer demands and to the reality of resource scarcities. Throwing money at the problem won't solve it. What the bubble did was to throw these relative prices out of whack and hence throw the resource use patterns out of whack. We're paying the price for that now. The bottom line as we uh, wrap up this discussion here, Barack Obama campaigned on a message of change. He has changed some policies that uh, the Bush administration touted, but on budgets and on spending, what is going to be the break or relative sameness of Barack Obama versus George W. Bush? Well, I think in a lot of ways, President Obama builds on the big spending approach of President Bush. And I'll give you seven different points uh, how President Obama's budget is actually was very similar to President Bush's budgeting priorities. One, deficit spending. Both President Bush and Obama were big deficit spenders. Two, as Don uh, discussed, Keynesianism. President Bush embraced Keynesianism with uh, temporary tax rebates and those sorts of policies, and so has President Obama. Undermining federalism. President Bush essentially tried to take control of the nation's K-12 schools. He uh, imposed new subsidies and mandates. And President Obama uh, will continue those policies. Healthcare expansion. President Bush's prescription drug bill is now costing taxpayers $60 billion every year and rising. President Obama wants to build on that with a new healthcare expansion. New subsidies. President Bush added hundreds of new subsidy programs. So does President Obama in his new budget. Government efficiency. Bush, rather than trying to cut programs or eliminate programs, he tried to make government work better and to be more efficient. President Obama is doing the same sorts of, uh, using the same sorts of government efficiency rhetoric. And finally, uh, both Bush and Obama, they threw a few bones out to fiscal conservatives with a few tiny spending tax cuts to try to make it seem like they were responsible budgeters. They both, for example, promised to do a slight trim to farm subsidies. But really, that's kind of a ruse. It's just kind of they're trying to signal that they're reformers, but they're not actually reformers. And just this final point, Republicans long the people who made arguments about responsible budgeting, about austerity of federal budgets, completely lost all of their credibility in the 2000s. And we have a president now and a Democratic Congress willing to spend even more, is it possible to have a party of restrained constitutional small government in the United States? Doesn't seem so. If, the, if you look at the evidence, not today. It's very sad. It's really up to the people. I mean, the you know, I criticize Bush and the Republican Party a lot for their fiscal irresponsibility to send the point home that there is a more fundamental problem here than a party label problem. Um, a lot of the talk show hosts like the Sean Hannity's always only bash the Democrats and President Obama The reality is that there is a real disease in Congress, a big spending disease that is deep-seated, and it's really up to the American people to ultimately get educated and wake up and start complaining to their members of Congress and their senators about all the spending that's going on. All right, gentlemen, we will have to leave the conversation there. Chris Edwards, Director of Tax Policy Studies at the Cato Institute, and Don Boudreau, Chairman of the Department of Economics at George Mason University. He also blogs at CafeHayek.com. Gentlemen, thank you very much.
President Obama talks about punishing companies that ship jobs overseas, what does he mean? As Cato trade policy analyst Sally James told me recently in a Cato Daily podcast, a booming trade in services means higher standards of living for Americans. They're intangible things. A good is something you can drop on your foot. If I buy a T-shirt, I can see it, I can touch it, I get that, it's got Made in China written on it, I understand that. But services are things that people provide and people are willing to pay for. So in that sense, it's a good, but it's not physical. So if you think about getting a haircut, that's a service. You pay for it and uh, it's something that it's benefit to your life, but it's not something you could touch. Taxi services is an obvious example. It's, it's usually the one that's used along with haircuts as an example of what we call non-tradables. In other words, things that you could never exchange across borders. Okay, it's impossible to consume a taxi service produced in, say, Bahrain when you're living in London. So I think that's one reason why maybe services trade is a little bit, if you like, um, I guess abstract to people. It's not something they touch and feel and work with every day. Now, when candidate Obama, now President Obama, talked on the campaign trail about shipping jobs overseas, to what extent was he talking about services? He was talking mainly about services. He, 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 did, he used the example of manufacturing, you know, a factory that unscrews the plant equipment and literally puts it on a boat and moves it to China. But really, I think more broadly, when people think about shipping jobs overseas, they're thinking about things like data processing, call centres. That's the perfect example of service trade. In other words, we are using the services of people in India and through the telecommunications advances we've made in recent decades, consuming those services in the United States. What kind of work does the US typically import in services? Just like in manufacturing, they tend to be the lower skilled level jobs. It doesn't take a high level of skill to process data, to enter data into a spreadsheet so that analytical minds can then do something with it. So really, it is this kind of refinement, this division of labour that's getting finer and finer through telecommunications that makes it easier to be able to consume those services and to outsource sort of chunks of a business, if you like. And some of the higher level stuff, the marketing, the analytics is done in the United States. Critics of this fail to realise that really in services, if you are a mercantilist and you like to look at trade balances, services is an area you're going to be pleased with. The United States has a trade surplus of tens of billions of dollars. It's the largest exporter of services, the largest importer as well, although imports are not growing as quickly as exports. So if you're concerned about trade balances and you want the United States to concentrate on things that it's able to export then services is the sector for you. What are the threats to the United States' ability to continue to trade in services across borders? The liberalisation of services is slow going. So is trade in goods for that matter. But certainly services is not as easy to negotiate as trade in goods, which is saying a lot because that's, those negotiations are proving tough going as well. When you're talking about trade barriers to trade in services, you're talking about regulatory stuff. You're not talking about a spreadsheet where you can look at the good and what the tariff is and then apply a formula to it and cut that tariff. And it doesn't work like that. It's more regulatory stuff. It's more domestic regulations. The main barriers, therefore, are governments jealously guarding their regulatory power. That goes to the United States as well, and especially things like transport. 
maritime shipping is the best example the United States is very jealous about guarding its right to divert maritime services procurement to US flagged and built ships. The United States intransigence on that issue is proving an obstacle to getting worldwide trade liberalisation and services where the United States has a lot to gain. So while there are definitely regulatory hurdles in other countries, the United States still has a lot of work that it could do on its own soil to lower barriers to the ability of United States consumers to get access to better, cheaper and a larger variety of services. With the return of one-party government, major policy changes in healthcare seem all but inevitable, yet fundamentally divergent interests in both Congress and the health industry will make consensus difficult to obtain. The most dangerous proposals are those that expand political control over parties' health care decisions, mandates, price controls, and government-run health care for the middle class. Michael Cannon, Cato's Director of Health Policy Studies, told a Capitol Hill gathering in January that government control of health care makes every health decision a political one. Yet just as price controls have failed in every other application throughout history, they fail when it comes to health insurance, too. Mark Pauley of the University of Pennsylvania and his colleagues have shown that premium controls offer little or no improvement in terms of covering the sick, and rather, premium controls actually encourage insurers to avoid the sick. And who can blame them? If an insurance company receives a premium keyed to the average medical expenses of everyone in their pool, then... Enrollees with higher than average medical expenses are nothing but a liability. That's why Humana called the sickest people in its Medicare prescription drug plan to tell them that Sierra Health Services' Sierra RX plan would offer them better coverage. It's because those people were costing Humana money and they wanted those seniors out. Premium controls themselves lead to worse health care for the sick because they reward insurers for skimping on care or otherwise taking steps to get rid of sicker enrollees actually acting in tandem that mandates and price controls do the most damage. Together, they would execute a pincer movement that would march all Americans into a narrow range of government-run health plans. With its requirement that all Americans purchase, quote, meaningful coverage, Mr. Obama's proposed employer mandate could eliminate the most economical 50% of health insurance options on the market. That means that some 80 million Americans with employer-sponsored insurance would have to purchase a more costly plan. At the same time, premium controls imposed on private health insurance would unleash adverse selection, which will eliminate the most comprehensive insurance plan options. That's what happened in the health insurance exchanges run by the federal government, the University of California, and Harvard University. In fact, the effect of adverse selection on health insurance choices at Harvard was documented by none other than Obama advisor David Cutler. So taken together, mandates and premium controls would effectively socialize private health insurance. They would march all Americans into that narrow range of government-approved health plans by eliminating both the low cost and the comprehensive options. And it matters little that we would continue to call these plans private because they would still be managed by nominally private insurance companies. If government compels you to participate in health insurance, if government decides what you will put in and what you will get out, then really what is there left to socialize? And for all the disruption that the leading democratic plans would bring, they would neither contain the growth of health care spending nor improve the quality of care. The reason, I would argue, can be found in a few inspirational passages that I'd like to read from you from Mr. Daschle's book on health care reform. Mr. Daschle writes, and I quote, 
What medical services should the government or private insurers have to cover? White House policymakers and members of Congress aren't qualified to make those decisions. Because healthcare is so complex, special interest experts have the upper hand in their dealings with legislators. The American people need to know that decisions on coverage and costs are being made for the public good and aren't tainted by politics or special interests. Professional expertise and trustworthiness, these are qualities that Congress lacks when it comes to health care. In Congress, every decision is political. Health care policy shouldn't be subject to the whims of subcommittee chairmen and special interests. It's too complicated and too important for that. After a century of failure, it's time to try another way. If coverage decisions are taken out of the hands of elected officials, advocacy groups with political clout wouldn't be able to exercise it. I suspect that most members of Congress would be glad to be rid of their responsibility for controversial health policy decisions. End quote. I read those words and I say amen. Mr. Daschle gives one of the best explanations I've ever read of why Congress should return to individual Americans the power to choose their own health plan and make their own health care decisions. Unfortunately, that is not what Mr. Daschle has in mind. Instead, Mr. Daschle hopes to break the cycle of government failure with a new federal health board, a Daschle ex machina, if you will, which would make decisions about your health care free from political influence. Mr. Daschle's proposed federal health board would dictate health insurance premiums and provider payments. It would make, quote, specific coverage decisions, end quote, that will determine whether millions of Americans get the drug or surgery that they want. It would create, quote, a single set of standards, end quote, for all government health care programs. And it would, quote, exert tremendous influence on every other provider and payer, even those in the private sector, end quote. And finally, the Federal Health Board would operate under, quote, a decision-making process that is one step removed from Congress and the White House, end quote. Make no mistake, what Mr. Daschle proposes is a Federal Health Rationing Board. No matter what Mr. Daschle or other advocates of this approach may say, the aim of a Federal Health Board or any federal agency designed to generating and deploying comparative effectiveness research is to ration medical care. The reason that Congress has been unable to make health care better, cheaper, and safer, as Mr. Daschle sees it, is not because Congress has too much power over your health care. It is because the American people's access to their members of Congress, their right to petition government for a redress of grievances, makes it too difficult for Congress to exercise that power. Therefore, the influence of the people must be curtailed. Mr. Daschle does not have a problem with power. Mr. Daschle has a problem with accountability. It's tempting to think that a Daschle ex machina, like a federal health rationing board, can overcome the political obstacles to reform. Yet the danger of those proposals is not so much that they will succeed in rationing care. More likely, they would fail. As Matthew Holt recently wrote at the healthcare blog, quote, the federal health board, if it gets established, will get defanged by lobbyists immediately, end quote. And why? Well, the graveyards in Washington are littered with agencies that have tried to use comparative effectiveness research to reduce government spending on low-value health care services. And they're also littered with schemes to contain Medicare and Medicaid spending that have later been undone by Congress. But Mr. Daschle, I would argue, is correct about one thing. After nearly a century of failure, it is time to try another way. Over the past century, health care reform has largely meant asking freedom to yield to government. Rather than asking the American people's freedom to control their health care, to yield to government once again... It is time we asked government to yield to freedom. It is time we gave all Americans, whether under or over age 65, the freedom to control their health care dollars and choose their own health plan. It is time that government eliminated regulations that have blocked 
the freedom of innovative health plans and providers to introduce secure health coverage and better, cheaper, and safer medical care. Freedom will make health insurance more affordable, as law professors Henry Butler, Larry Ribstein, and David Hyman will argue in a forthcoming Cato study. Freedom will deliver better coordinated care, as Arnold Kling and I argue, in a Cato study available today. Freedom will deliver more comparative effectiveness information, as I argue in a forthcoming Cato study, and freedom will enable purchasers to use that information to contain costs, something that government has proven over and over that is, it is incapable of doing. Freedom will make private health insurance possible for many more patients with high-cost medical conditions. As University of Chicago finance professor John Cochran argued in his classic 1995 Journal of Political Economy article, and will argue again in an upcoming Cato study. And finally, freedom will enhance society's ability to care for the sick and the needy, as I argue in the Cato Handbook for Policymakers. Admittedly, the freedom to control health care and the freedom to innovate are unlikely to gain ground in this Congress. And so it would be better if this Congress adhered to the principle of don't just do something, stand there. It would be better if Congress blocked new government health programs, mandates, price controls, and the bureaucracy designed to implement them, and we put off health care reform until we have a Congress that looks more favorably on these freedoms than the past few Congresses have. Because if we do not block those measures, if we enact them, then in five or ten years we'll be right back where we are now, lamenting the growing cost of health care, outraged that insurers are avoiding the sick, bemoaning the lack of choice in health insurance, decrying our healthcare sector's inability to coordinate care, lamenting the lack of comparative effectiveness research and how we don't even use what little research we have, and scratching our heads over why healthcare lags other sectors of the economy in terms of information technologies and other innovations. We face serious challenges in healthcare, but the first rule of holes advises that when you're in a hole, stop digging. An intolerable status quo is no excuse for making things worse, and better that we do nothing now than rely on the same tired ideology that brought us to where we are. Does President Obama care about civil liberties? He's made clear that the United States doesn't torture and has earned the accolades of civil libertarians for that move. But what about rendition and other problematic policies of recent years? Jeffrey Rosen is a law professor at George Washington University. At a Cato Policy Forum on the Obama administration held in February, Rosen offered a balanced take on what we're likely to see on the civil liberties front in the Obama years. In the war on terror, they have endorsed the rendition program of the CIA. Leon Panetta endorsed that in testimony. Elena Kagan, in testimony, has endorsed indefinitely detaining terrorism suspects without trials, even if they were arrested far from a war zone, insisting that battlefield law applies outside the war zone itself. The administration, as Gene and Lou have suggested, have embraced the Bush administration's argument that CIA detainees' lawsuits should be shut down based on the state secrets doctrine. And earlier this month, I'm citing from Charlie Savage's excellent piece in the New York Times, Obama issued a statement thanking the British government for its commitment to protecting sensitive national security information. All of these are areas where we're likely to see continuities rather than similarities. Lou mentioned the continuities of the Office of Legal Counsel, and here I think they're interesting. Don Johnson, 
was called by Mother Jones the anti-you because of her strident criticisms of John Yu while she was a law professor. She called him a rogue legal advisor and said that the shockingly flawed content of his notorious memos justifying torture demand our outrage. It's a novelistic turn that the anti-you will soon be responsible for defending the real you, and it's striking that she has signaled her intention to do so enthusiastically. She has not rejected the idea that presidents can refuse to sign laws because they believe they're unconstitutional, noting their constitutional objections in signing statements. The ABA has questioned the use of signing statements for this purpose. Johnson has tentatively endorsed that. And while she was at OLC, she helped President Clinton assert that he had the power to refuse to enforce a provision in a military authorization bill requiring the armed forces to discharge HIV-positive members. So she's not an opponent of signing statements in all respects. And she's also, along with Eric Holder and President Obama, signaled her opposition to torture prosecutions of CIA agents who relied on OLC opinions in good faith on the grounds that the bipartisan traditions of OLC have to be upheld. And the whole point of an OLC opinion is that it's essentially a get-out-of-jail-free card for officials who rely on that legal advice. So those who hope for dramatic uh, changes in the Office of Legal Counsel may well be disappointed too. All right, let's try to think back to the youthful enthusiasm a full year ago that inspired me to call Obama the first, uh, hope that he'd be the first civil libertarian president. Is there any more optimistic scenario that might lead him to uh, gladden civil libertarian and libertarian hearts? Well, certainly in his determination to close Guantanamo, he signaled a reluctance to create legal black holes that are immune from the review of American courts. There'll be a vigorous debate within the administration about whether to try the detainees in military courts or to set up a national security court. But broadly, his determination to regularize Guantanamo, full of challenges, obviously, given the poor procedures that led to the detainees uh, to begin with, is a step in the right direction. The biggest difference, though, I think, between Obama and Bush will not be so much on substance, but on procedure. He's unlikely to make both the constitutionally unconvincing and also politically unnecessary and self-defeating argument that the president can do whatever he likes without congressional authorization. It really is striking when we look back on the Bush years, which seem so far away, although they ended only recently, just how, regardless of what else you think about it, how politically stupid and self-defeating it was for the administration to assert again and again that could act without congressional authorization. As Jack Goldsmith, the former head of OLC under Bush, claimed, Bush could have gotten everything he wanted and more if he'd merely gone to Congress rather than trying to get it on his own. He wouldn't have provoked judicial backlashes, and he would have been on more solid political and constitutional footing. I don't think Obama will make that mistake. And when it comes to the war on terror, as well as the economy, he will seek congressional support rather than defying Congress. But that's a kind of uh, modest uh, bomb for those of us who are seeking for uh, limitations on presidential power. Congress is going to be no more inclined to limit the president than uh, the president might have been limited acting on its own. The truth is there's never been a national constituency for civil liberties. I'm always struck by the polls that John Ashcroft used to cite. He's noted that 50% of the public thought the Patriot Act struck the right balance between privacy and security. 20% thought it didn't go far enough, and only 20% thought it went too far. That's the 20% that he called the vocal 
minority of civil libertarian liberals and libertarian conservatives. Those numbers seem about right, which is why the Clinton administration, no friend to civil liberties, endorsed many of the provisions after Oklahoma City that ended up in the Patriot Act and why we've never really seen a post-Watergate president dramatically limiting its power. What do we really know about suicide terrorism? And could the U.S. military's stepped-up action in Afghanistan actually foment more suicide attacks? Robert Pape is professor of political science at the University of Chicago, specializing in international security affairs. He believes the spread of U.S. forces all over Afghanistan has driven the spike in suicide terrorism. Pape spoke at the Cato Institute's counterterrorism conference in January. Video of his presentation is available at Cato.org. Afghanistan is also a prime example of the strategic logic of suicide terrorism. Before our invasion in 2001, Afghanistan never experienced a suicide terrorist attack in its history with the lone exception of the suicide assassination of Massoud, the leader of the Northern Alliance, on September 9th, 2001, which was directly in anticipation of the American invasion. There was essentially a honeymoon of a few years. And then in 2005, but especially 2006, oh my gosh, something's happened. The spike up of suicide terrorism in Afghanistan. Why? Well, I think we can explain that. Let's look at the targets and who's doing the suicide attacks. The next slide shows you the targets. As you can see, the targets of the suicide terrorism have been heavily concentrated against security targets, and especially American and Western ground forces. These are comprising 80 plus percent of all the suicide terrorism that's occurring in Afghanistan. And in fact, the numbers in 2008, just in case you're wondering, those will go up. That's just for the first six months. They would essentially more than double once we include the next six months. We go to the next slide, we can see who the attackers are. We can confidently identify 37 of the suicide attackers in Afghanistan. Of these, 35 or 95% are Afghan nationals. Yes, many of those Afghan nationals are living in refugee camps across the border, but the fact is they're Afghan nationals. This is the pattern of local opposition to Western military presence, not a global jihad just kind of flowing around the world. But still, why the spike up? If you go to the next slide, you can see that part of the answer has to do with the escalation of the level of Western ground forces. For the first few years of the occupation, we had less than 15,000 Western ground forces. Then, starting around 2004, you'll notice the steady escalation of ground forces. And of course, many of you know we're about to add another 20,000, but that's just been going on steadily since 2004. But what's the real reason underneath this? If you go to the final slide, you'll see that the most important reason for the spike in suicide terrorism in Afghanistan is a shift in Western military deployment patterns in Afghanistan. For the first two years, Western ground forces were not only small in number, but were mainly limited to the occupation of Kabul, because it was not until October 2003 that the UN granted permission for Western forces to occupy areas outside of Kabul. 
Then, after that UN mandate, NATO developed a plan, and this is the actual expansion plan you see from NATO on the slide, the actual plan. They developed a plan to occupy the rest of the country. Not surprisingly, they started with the north and the western regions because those are inhabited by populations sympathetic to the northern alliance, our allies. That's where you'd go first. And then starting in 2005, and especially in 06, they go to the south and they go to the east. Those are the areas populated by the Pashtuns sympathetic to the Taliban. That is, the more that we have sat directly on the Pashtun homeland, the more the Pashtuns have supported the Taliban, and the more this has led to an escalation of anti-Western and especially anti-American suicide terrorism against our presence. This obviously bodes poorly for trying to stabilize Afghanistan by adding another 20,000 or even another 30,000 ground forces. I think unless we're seriously talking about adding a very large number of ground forces, most experts I talk to think probably we need somewhere between 200,000 just in the Kandahar region alone. If we're really going to talk about stabilizing that region to get any real benefit, unless we're talking about a dramatically larger number of ground forces, I think we should recognize that just throwing in another 10 or 20,000 ground forces is probably the worst of both worlds. It's probably not enough to actually stabilize the situation, but it is enough to continue to foment anti-American suicide terrorism. America's drug war is damaging an already strained civil society in Mexico. Thousands of people were murdered just last year in the fights among rival groups of drug traffickers. Ted Galen Carpenter, Cato's vice president for defense and foreign policy studies, says the prohibitionist model of dealing with drugs has failed. And the U.S. and Mexico must realize, and soon, that it's time for another strategy. He spoke at a Cato policy forum in February. I've been writing on the topic of uh, drug corruption and violence now for uh, better than six years, the first time being a chapter in Bad Neighbor Policy, a book that was published in 2003. And at times I feel like uh, Bill Murray in the movie Groundhog Day. (laughs) I seem to be reliving this topic from time to time. And every time I write on this issue, the situation in Mexico has become a bit worse than it was the previous time. And indeed, there has been a significant escalation in the violence even since I completed the latest study in early December. Now, what we have seen in Mexico is a very sobering trend. In 2008, more than 5,300 people were killed in drug-related violence. And at the current pace for 2009, we're looking at something in the area of 8,000 dead. It is a carnage that is alarming already. To give you just an idea of what the situation is like, in one two-day period in late January, 18 people were found shot dead in the northern Mexican state of Chihuahua, and another four in a neighboring state 
those bodies on the property of the state-run oil company, Pemex. And in just one city, Ciudad Juarez, more than 200 people have been killed so far this year. Violence in Tijuana, another border city, is so bad that the commander at Camp Pendleton has barred the Marines there from spending their leave time in Tijuana. Violence in the border cities is the worst, but the violence is spreading and spreading quickly. As just one incident, a retired general of the Mexican army was appointed to head up anti-drug efforts in the resort city of Cancun. Within a matter of, I think, less than two weeks after he was appointed, he was assassinated. And all too typical of the situation in Mexico, the police chief and a number of his subordinates have been arrested and uh, are apparently involved in that crime. The violence in Mexico, as bad as it is, is no longer affecting just Mexicans. U.S. tourism, particularly in the border cities, is dropping and dropping rapidly. The State Department last year issued a number of travel alerts to Americans traveling in Mexico. One of those alerts indicated that the fighting was so bad that it was, and I quote, the equivalent of small unit combat. And the fighting involved the use of machine guns and rocket-propelled grenades. Mexico has already displaced Colombia as the kidnapping capital of the world. And as I note in the policy analysis, the violence is spilling across the border into the United States. American citizens, including law enforcement personnel, have been targeted by the drug cartels for assassination. There was an ABC television news segment just last week about the more than 300 kidnapping incidents in the city of Phoenix over the past year, a majority of those incidents involving the Mexican drug cartels. And Mexican drug gangs now operate in most American cities, virtually all the 50 largest cities, and in a good many smaller cities as well. The question is, this is bad, but where do we go from here? Alarm in the United States at long last is rising about the situation in Mexico. And that has generated, I think, some extreme analysis including the thesis that Mexico might become a full-blown failed state. The country could implode. Texas and other southwestern states are developing contingency plans in case that happens, that they need to handle a flood of refugees, hundreds of thousands, conceivably even a few million refugees coming from Mexico. Now, I take the position that the fear of Mexico becoming a full-fledged failed state is somewhat exaggerated. It's unlikely the violence, as bad as it is, is going to reach that level. It would have to increase quite a lot. On the other hand, that possibility cannot be entirely ruled out. At the beginning of this decade, I would say there was no more than maybe one chance in a hundred that Mexico would become a failed state. I would estimate it now as more like 1 in 20, perhaps even 1 in 15. Still a relatively unlikely scenario, but one that we cannot ignore. And even if that doesn't happen, the current violence is bad enough. Now, in response to the violence in Mexico, 
policymakers and pundits have come up with a variety of solutions. One that is increasingly popular is to dramatically increase U.S. border security, indeed to seal the border, to quarantine the violence so that it at least does not drastically impact the United States. My colleague Dan Griswold will discuss that thesis in greater detail. Another one, which is the personal favorite of the Mexican government and uh, some liberals in the United States, is to tighten U.S. gun laws. The theory goes that the cartels are getting the vast majority of their weapons from the United States, and that is due to lax gun laws, particularly in the southwestern states. And only if we would just tighten those gun laws, the violence in Mexico would drop dramatically. Well, that panacea, I think, is even less logical than the notion of sealing the border. Let's remember, when we're dealing with the drug cartels, we are dealing with people who make their living operating in a black market in another commodity. Do we really think that those people would have difficulty getting guns on the vast international black market involving firearms. I don't think so. It's simply a little more convenient for them to do it this way. We need to face some rather troubling realities. Point number one, there is no way to suppress the drug trade now dominated by the Mexican cartels. The Merida Initiative We've already funded $400 million in what is going to be undoubtedly a multi-billion dollar, multi-year venture is going to have little effect. This is pattern on Plan Columbia, and to give you the bottom line on Plan Columbia, despite some now almost nine years of that plan, better than $5 billion, a GAO report that came out last year noted that cocaine exports from Colombia were up not down. We have to remember that the global drug trade is a $300 billion to $350 billion a year enterprise. And Mexico's share is estimated to be at least $25 to $30 billion. And one DEA official in Mexico City actually puts it at $60 billion. There's an inherent difficulty in estimating the size of an illegal enterprise, but it's big. I think that's fair to say. Moreover, global demand for drugs is growing, not shrinking. So the drug suppliers are in a very enviable position. Point number two, where we need to face reality. It is the illegality of drugs that creates a huge black market premium, and enriches the cartels. About 90% of the retail price of most drugs is due to that black market premium. It gives the cartels enormous resources to bribe government officials or to hire hitmen to take out officials who won't be cooperative, who won't be bribed. To give you just one example of the kind of resources they have available and how they're putting it, those resources to use. Over the past few months, there's been a major bribery scandal in Mexico's attorney general's office involving the drug cartels. The bribes paid by 
one of the cartels, an area of $150,000 to $450,000 per month. We need to face reality on another matter. Because drugs are illegal, the most violence-prone criminal elements will dominate the trade. That is inevitable. The U.S. experience with the prohibition of alcohol in the 1920s and early 1930s demonstrated that clearly. During that period, the trade was dominated by the likes of Al Capone and Dutch Schultz. Today, the alcohol trade is dominated by the likes of Anheuser-Busch, Gallo Wines, and Jack Daniels Distillery. Now, this is an intelligence test for my drug warrior friends. Which situation is better? We need to face reality on another matter. Ending drug prohibition is the only lasting way to dampen the drug violence in Mexico. Now, without doing that, we may still get a temporary decline, particularly if the Sinaloa and Gulf cartels, the two leading drug organizations, sort out the market and end their bloody turf fights. We've seen similar developments on a smaller scale in a number of American cities, that once the rival drug gangs kind of sort out the market, violence subsides for a number of years until you get new entrants and then there are more rivalries and the violence goes back up. There's another possible temporary fix, although Washington certainly wouldn't like it, and that is if the government of President Felipe Calderon would back off from confronting the cartels. After all, he was the one who really escalated this fight by calling in the military and adopts a policy of, and let's be blunt about this, appeasement. That step would certainly provoke wrath from Washington, but it might very well, at least for a time, cause a decline in the violence. But such a respite would be only temporary. The only long-term solution is to defund the cartels. And the only way to do that is to end drug prohibition. And I want to emphasize this point. It's not enough to simply have harm reduction as good as those reforms might be. It means legalizing the production and sale of drugs, not just decriminalizing the possession and use of drugs. If one doesn't do that, the black market premium is still intact and you're still going to have the most violent criminal elements dominating the trade. Drug legalization is certainly not a panacea. I'm the first to recognize that, that one would still have a lot of social public health problems in a legalized system. We do with alcohol following the end of prohibition. We have problems with drunk driving. We have problems with alcoholism. But on balance, it is a much better system than what we had during the Prohibition era. On balance, this would be a far better system. We've waged a vigorous war on drugs now for nearly four decades, ever since President Richard Nixon declared that war. And really, even before that, we had a prohibition policy in place ever since the passage of the Harrison Act in 1914. 
The intensified drug war has produced horrific consequences, both domestically and internationally, most notably now with our southern neighbor, Mexico. I know there are policymakers out there, particularly who have career and budgetary interests in the current strategy, who are determined to perpetuate it. But I'm sorry, after four decades of a strategy not working, it is time to try an entirely different strategy. Cato University is the Cato Institute's biggest educational event of the year. This July in San Diego, Cato University is presenting economic crisis, war, and the rise of the state. With the drive to now solve all of our major problems through top-down government intrusion, a tidal wave of spending and new programs stream out of Washington. Cato University takes you into how the U.S. has responded to crises, the threats to liberty we now face from the tsunami wave of big government, and how it can be resolved. For all of the details, go to catouniversity.org. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. If you have any questions or comments about Cato Audio, email me at cbrown at cato.org. We value your feedback. I'll talk to you again next month.